got some good news and bad news. The good news is this will be the last week in John chapter 5. The bad news is I have no idea anything about chapter 6. So, <clears throat> Now last week we, uh, we dedicated our time to uh, what without question is the single greatest doctrine in all the Bible. And that is the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ being the Son of God. And uh, that term clearly defined in the Bible means that he is very God himself. And how the devil hates that concept and wants that title for himself. We took a lot of time <clears throat> to look at the different aspects running that back. And we saw that all down through history, that's exactly what the devil has done. He has used churches. He's used men, nations, kings, queens, popes <clears throat> to steal that title for himself. And in most cases, it really wasn't a question of stealing it. It was offered up to him uh, fairly uh, easily through history. And we need to understand, you know, God's original plan, which we've talked about <clears throat> many, many times. We know that God put Adam and Eve down in the garden. And God gives Adam a commission to be fulfilled, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. And we know from our, our Bible studies uh, over the last months and years, you know, what that plan really was and what that purpose was. And we also know that, as I've said many, many times, the Bible, as all history, is simply broken down in God moving to accomplish something and then the devil moving to stop what he's doing. And if you don't really understand what's happening, God and the Bible and how it all plays out, it's easy to get the idea that, you know, God is, is the devil keeps getting one up on God and God is, you know, trying to run around trying to fix what the devil does. And that's not the case. God has a plan. You know, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we talk about a great verse for all of us. It says, you know, that all things work together for good that them that love God are called according to his purpose. And that is a great promise to you and to me that no matter what happens in your life, good or bad, God is going to use it. Uh, that all things work together for good. And of course, that's also true with what God is doing. Uh, it all works out to his good. God is never caught unaware. God is never caught, you know, so to speak, where the angels run in and say, you ain't going to believe this, but the devil's doing this. And God says, oh man, I didn't know that. No, that's not the way it works. He has a sovereign plan. And when the devil tries to stop it, God will always have another plan behind that plan to accomplish something from what the devil did. And certainly Adam and Eve is a great study on that. You know, so what we see is we see that when God put Adam and Eve down in the garden, the devil comes in, Genesis chapter 3, and, and it ends in failure. It ends in disaster. And as I said, somebody would say, wow, you know, uh, God didn't see that one coming. No, he saw it coming. He knew exactly what was going to happen. God has a plan within his own plan. And so from that point on, God gives that crown to the kingdom of heaven, passes it on from men up to Israel when it becomes a nation. Noah gets it, and then Abraham gets it, Jacob gets it, right on down the line. But the devil wants that crown, and then every time God gave that crown to a patriarch in the Old Testament, you know what happened. The devil came in and took it back. And again, somebody looks at that and says, well, there's God. He just can't get ahead of the devil. No, he's way ahead of the devil. 
The, problem, the bottom line is simply this. It goes from man to man to man, and then to Israel in Exodus chapter 12, 1st, 2nd Samuel, once they get established, and they forfeit it. And then the devil has it, and he has it up to you know, the first coming of Christ. And somebody would say, well, what, what is all going on here? No, what God is doing is this. God is, God is giving everybody who in, begins to understand what he's doing. He leaves no question to man's inability to keep what God gives him. I don't care who you are. The greatest, wisest, godliest, holiest men that ever you could ever walk through the pages of the Bible. The devil found out their weakness and he got them. So we have from Genesis 3 all the way up to the first coming of Christ where God is proven to anybody with any ounce of intelligence that God's creation man cannot hold on to what God gives him. So you know what God did? Here it comes. It's so simple. And God came down and did it himself. And by doing that, he ensured forever that there would never be another failure. You see, you and I fail every day, don't we? But you know where we don't fail? We don't fail in our salvation. You know why? If These guys who go around teaching you can lose your salvation. Let me tell you something. If it was possible for you to lose it, that's exactly what you would do. Who do you think you are? I mean, the wisest, godliest men in the Bible, they couldn't keep on to it. You know, and if you, if you had actually lived your salvation, you know, and you'd walk around life holding on to it, you know, and just say, I'm not going to look at anything, so I'll lost, I'm not going to think anything, so I'll think something bad, I'm not going to say anything, I'm not going to lose it, I'm just going to... You'd be in your deathbed with 10 seconds to go, and some thought would fly through your head, and you'd be in hell. You can't keep it yourself. That's what he did. He shows you all through the Bible. God's creation, man, cannot keep what God has given him. So at the first coming of Christ, God said, you know what? I'll fix it. I'll ensure that it'll never fail again. I'll ensure that nobody will ever drop that crown. So God was manifested in the flesh. He came down. In the fashion of a man, Philippians 2.8, and he pays the price for our sin debt, ensuring forever that God's plan will never fail. You know, God in the Bible is a great book. My mom asked me one time, she said, she asked me, uh, you know, about the Bible, how come it's got all the rotten, dirty things that's in the Bible that, uh, you know, that you see in the world. And she, she asked me why God put all that in the Bible. And I told her, I said, because God wants to show us the depravity of man. And based on man's ungodliness, it illustrates his godliness and the fact that we fail. Adam failed. Noah failed. Abraham failed. Jacob failed. Isaac failed. Joseph failed. They all failed. Jesus Christ did not fail. God manifested in the flesh. And this is laid out so clearly in the book of Romans chapter 5. And you know I've told you before how the book of Romans is a 
is a great book. Romans chapter 1 talks about how that the Gentiles are in a terrible predicament and going to die and go to hell. Chapter 2 tells us how that the Jews are in the same mess, just by a different route, but they're in the same mess, and uh, they're going to die and go to hell. Then he shows us in chapter 4 that getting God's, you know, the law and getting the, the law and following with your conscience will not solve the problem that either the Gentiles have or the Jews have. Oh, and then we come to chapter 5. Chapter 5 of the book of Romans tells us why God's answer to it is the only answer. And he says in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 8, coming down through verse 15, here's what he says. But God commended his love toward us in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Everybody ought to have that verse memorized. That's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. <clears throat> Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, before you were saved, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You know what he's saying? He's simply saying there <clears throat> that uh, uh, we were once God enemy, God's enemies before we got saved. You know what Christ did when he came down? He reconciled. He brought the two opposing parties together, God and me and you, through his sacrifice on Calvary's cross. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our, our, our Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, because of everything he said so far, as by one man sin entered into the world, there's Adam, <clears throat> and so by sin, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, there's you and me, for all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be made dead, there's Adam, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace which is by one man, Jesus Christ, had abounded unto many. You know what he just said? He said what I just said. Adam destroyed it. The devil thought he had it beat. The devil thought he was going to defeat every man. And until the cross of Calvary, when Jesus Christ comes out of that tomb, he has the keys of death and hell. Amen. And that because of that, we never have to die again if you trust the Lord Jesus Christ after your personal Savior in the spiritual sense of death. So the deity of Christ is an absolute doctrine for our salvation. And without that doctrine, there can be no salvation. No one can be saved. I said, verse 12 says, By one man sin came into the world, and by one man was taken from the world uh, by, the, by the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, God manifested in the flesh. And then I showed you the root source of all heresy today. And I told you there was two types of heresies. There's heresy that's in the body of Christ that saved people get caught up in. And there's heresy without the body of Christ that unsaved people teach that'll send you to hell. And all this is found in the, uh, in the Babylon mystery religion, the mother of harlots. And I showed you how that all down through church history, God broke it down into seven periods. And in each church period, each one of these churches had a main fundamental heretical doctrine that came up 
that tried to be infiltrated into the church that the true church had to deal with. And by doing that, through the course of history, formed for us what we believe today to be true based on not only what the Bible says, but the true biblical church, not true biblical line. And we know now that Babylon, mystery religion, the mother of harlots, without a doubt, uh, will be the greatest enemy that Christianity or the world ha- has ever seen. We started last Saturday morning the book of Acts. And I told everybody how important the book of Acts was that if you're ever going to figure out the New Testament, you have got to have the book of Acts and understand what's going on there. And I, I basically told them, among other things, that the, you know one of the easy ways to, and there's a number of easy outlines that walks you through Acts. One of them is the natural breakdown that I actually gave you that morning. But I also told you that the book of Acts is built around three cities. And if you can see these three cities, not only in the book of Acts, but from a historical standpoint, it'll, it'll catapult you into the 20, 21st century and show you that these are the same three cities that, uh, that you need to understand today. And of course, the first city I told them about was the, was the church at Antioch, or Antioch in Syria. Antioch is where the true biblical line begins. If you have a King James Bible in your lap this morning, you could trace that book back uh, to Antioch in Syria. Uh, in fact, during the Dark Ages, they only had two Bibles that all the Bible believers had. One of them was the Old Latin, uh, and the other one was the Old Syriac, which is Syriac, Syria, which came out of Antioch. That was the true biblical line. It always has been. And when we get into church history, uh, 10, 12 years from now, I will make sure that you get that down. And so the true biblical line starts in Antioch, and you can trace it right up to our church here at Old Path Baptist Church. Uh, the next city you want to look at is Alexandria, Egypt. And this will be where Antioch is the source of Bible truth. Alexandria, Egypt will be the source of biblical corruption. <clears throat> and then, you know, those are the ones who begin to destroy <clears throat> the Word of God and do the damage there. Uh, and we've talked about that many, many times. The third city <clears throat> is Rome itself. And without a doubt, you know, Rome is the greatest enemy of God and God's people and God's church anywhere in history. I've always, <clears throat> it always has amazed me how ridiculously stupid most pastors are when it comes to uh, not only the book of Acts, but uh, these three cities. They, they just don't have a clue. You know, and once you understand that, you know, all your new Bibles come out of Rome. I mean, it comes off of two manuscripts, Sinaiticus, which was found in the Sinai in a, in a Catholic monastery, and Vaticanus, which was found in the Vatican. All your new Bibles <coughs> come out of those two sets of manuscripts, never the King James Bible. <coughs> it always amazed me how a guy could know that or believe that, and maybe they don't. <coughs> I mean, and think that anything good can come out of Rome. I mean, hey, it was Rome that killed John the Baptist. It was Rome that persecuted the early Christians in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They persecuted the Jews. They had Christ whipped and beaten. They put nails in his hands and a spear in his side. Uh, They had him crucified. They killed James with the sword. They murdered millions and millions of God's Bible-believing people from 500 to 1,500. 
the greatest enemy of God's people has always been Rome. Why in the world would you think that God would bring you a Bible from there? It just is beyond my understanding. And I, I tell you all the time, you know, my job is to help develop you to the point where you can actually have the ability to go behind the scenes, like we've talked about, of history and the Bible and see the real issues. Being able to see not just at face value what you have, but what really is going on. And then I showed you four witnesses of Christ's deity from John chapter 5, right in the chapter. The first one was John the Baptist. John the Baptist, as you know, was the forerunner of Christ. He shows up six months. He's born six months before Christ. He opens up his ministry six months before Christ. And he heralds the coming king that was prophesied back in the Old Testament. The second thing was his works himself. And I ran you back to Exodus chapter 4 and showed you how that the works were key in recognizing who he was. The third one was God the Father himself. In Matthew chapter 17, a voice was heard from heaven. It was God's voice. And it says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Talking about Christ. Then it said, hear ye him. And then the fourth one was the scriptures themselves. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5 and 7 talks about Christ coming in the volume of a book. And you have that book today. And there is four key Uh, uh, things in that chapter that show you that. And then we finished up last week with the Bible as the most scientific book the world has ever seen. Talked about the 48 prophecies given about Christ 600 to 1,000 to 1,500 years before he was born and the mathematical statistical probability of all those coming to pass at the first coming of Christ, 10 to the 157th power. And as I said, more than the electrons in the universe. Somebody's told me that if you want to put that into an understandable thing for us, that would be like anybody winning the mega Powerball 19 times in a row. Not very, not very going to be successful at that. Now today, <clears throat> I want to finish out chapter 5. We, will, this, we, we kind of took this chapter a little differently. We just didn't follow through verse by verse. Some chapters are this way where you've got to glean out of it different things to get the whole chapter And we have gleaned just about all that we could get out of it. And uh, you will remember he told us in verses 46 and 47 that if the nation of Israel would have believed Moses, and Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, it's called the Pentateuch, and every Jew had these books and knew these books. And he told them if they would have believed Moses, they would have believed him, Christ, because he wrote of him. And he says, but if ye believe not his writings, Moses, how shall ye believe my word? And of course, this is the fundamental problem. They didn't because they didn't, they didn't believe either one of them. And so now we see a complete rejection of all the Old Testament scriptures that without a doubt point toward Christ as the only true Messiah for the nation of Israel. And I want to talk to you today about being a witness for Christ. I think this is a good way to end this chapter. <clears throat> I, uh, I, I, want to, uh, uh, I want to talk about you and me being a witness. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we're told that after we receive the Holy Spirit of God, power, that he, Jesus said, you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, and the innermost parts of the earth. 
So I want to read now chapter 5, verses 32 through 35, and then we're going to talk about us as Christ's witness. Let's pray. Father, help us today to glean from this last uh, message, Father, uh, on our ability to be Christ's witness. We love you. We thank you, Father, for all that you do. We pray now your hand upon uh, us today and uh, all the events that we've had for a good weekend and the rest of this day. Keep us safe. And Lord, let us uh, minister to those that are around us and let our witness go forth to uh, all the people that will be there tonight. And then yet, Father, in our lives every day, let us be conscious of the fact that we are our, your witness. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now he says in verse 32, there is another that bears witness of me. I know that that witness which he witnesses of me is true. He sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that you might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. Now, there's a key word here in these verses that I want you to see, and I want you to begin to, first of all, understand what it really means, then see how it's used, and then as you find it through the Scriptures, it'll make more sense to you. And this will be the word unto. Uh, not a very big, exciting word, but yet one that will really carry with it a punch that will help you. And that's a great word to use in studying our own lives as a Christian. Uh, and it's incredible, it's incredible the way God uses it. Now, for me, I, I have a definitive passage or verse for every principle found in the Bible. I, 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 for me, I, I saw that years and years and years ago, and I just simply, if, if anything that I say, teach, I will be able to run you back to the definitive verse. And by the definitive verse, I mean the verse, as I talked about last week, that brings it down to the lowest common denominator. And for me, the definitive passage on this word, unto, will be found in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. So let's go back there for a moment, and uh, let's see how this all pulls together for us as being a witness for Christ. It says this, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Now, that's a picture fundamentally of you and me as a New Testament Christian. And it says, Paul, a servant. You and I are to be a servant. We are to have a servant's attitude. We're to do the work of a servant. And we are to do the work of God uh, as a servant. So that fits for you and for me. Then he says, called to be an apostle. Now, I know there are no apostles today. This is talking about Paul. Paul was called to be an apostle. Now, you will not be called to be an apostle, but I'm going to tell you this. Every one of you this morning, if you're saved, you have a calling. God's called you to do something. You won't be an apostle. Uh, you, there are no apostles today. That was limited to Jesus' time. But God has something that he wants you to do that he's going to call you to do. So you have a calling. And then he says, separated unto the gospel of God. Now the word separated or separation is a big deal in your Bible. Uh, we, we find the word, you know, sanctified or sanctification. 
The first time that word shows up in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, where God finished the six days of creation, and on the seventh day, he, he sanctified it. That means he set that day apart, and that's what the word sanctification means. It means to be separated. It means to separate you out. And uh, that's exactly what it's talking about. And we, once we get saved, we're sanctified. Now, everybody thinks that that means that you're godly or you're holy, you know, you're a saint sanctified. Well, okay, but that's not what the Word is talking about. When you got saved, you got sanctified. That means you got set apart from the world. God took you out of the darkness and put you into the light, and the two should never get back together again. In other words, you're separated. You're sanctified. And that's what the Word means. It's a key teaching in the New Testament. We should be set, we should be separate from the world. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, talking to believers, you and me, it says, Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. First Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says that you and I should be holy, even as Christ is holy. And you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, it lists what an unsaved man is. And, and, and goes down through that whole thing. And then he says this, And such were some of you, talking to believers. But he says, But now, here it comes, three things. You're washed in the blood. You're sanctified. You're set apart. And you're justified in God's sight. In other words, you're saved. And most preachers that I've been around, they and, and, and rightly so, they preach that you should... Once you get saved, that you shouldn't be part of the world. I get that. You got some of God's people that uh, have no balance at all, and they think you ought to be separated from everything. We had a question the other night in Bible study from a lady uh, who someone told her that if you're saved, you shouldn't even joke or laugh. Now, that's separated. And uh, that's not just separated. That's boring, man. But that's the way some on the extreme are. And, you know, you find all kinds of degrees of separation. As a Christian, Paul says all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. You need to understand, given your witness, what you can do and what you can't do. But fundamentally, you're separated from the world. You don't go to the same old places. You don't talk the same old way. You don't do the same old things. It's a different now. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. All things become new. That's separated. That's sanctified. That's sanctification in the Bible. And most preachers will preach that. They'll get up there and preach about liquor. They'll preach about giving up this. They'll talk about, you know, uh, you, don't, you, know you don't do this. You don't do that. Uh, you don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. They do that whole nine yards, you know. And I'm okay with that. That's okay. That's, you, should, you should be separate. But here's where they fail. They'll preach that, separated from the world, but it's more than that. And it's more than that based on Romans chapter 1. He said, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be apostle, separated under the gospel of God. Baptist preachers today want to get you separated from the world, but they don't want to get you separated to anything. And that's where the failure comes in. What good is it if I separate you from the world or if I don't separate you unto the gospel? 
You see, unto is defined in Romans chapter 1, 1 will be you not just <clears throat> leaving the old things, but joining yourself under the truth of God, under the gospel of God. And the failure of most pastors and churches, they have no clue. And I'm going to tell you right now, you will never do anything meaningful for God until, one, you get obviously separated from the world, but two, you then through that get separated unto the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's a waste of time to separate you from the world if he doesn't separate you unto something. Unto means you become part of that. You leave what you're part of here, but you become part of this over here, the gospel. And the word unto is an incredible word. First Thessalonians 4, 7, God has called us unto holiness. See? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the Bible says that we're his workmen unto good works. Luke chapter 20, verse 25, is a great one on separated from the world. He says, render unto Caesar, which is Caesar's, but render unto God, which is his. There has to be a balance in your life. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which I already gave you, that we're going to be the witnesses unto Christ to reach the world. All of that is found under the umbrella of being separated unto the gospel. Now, in John chapter 5, verse 33... He tells us that John's witness was unto the truth. Ah, there it is. That when you get separated from the world, you need to get separated from the gospel, and you get separated unto God's holiness, unto God's good works, and then you get separated unto the truth. Now, that's what it means for us. It means that we are separate from this world, but unto the gospel and my witness is not just the words that I say, but the very life that I now live unto the truth. Separate from the world and its falsehood of lies and separated unto the truth, a life of truth. You know, I'm separated from something, the world, but I'm separated unto something, the gospel of truth. And I want to say right now, we got the bad idea that we witness with our words for Christ, but our lives can be whatever we want them to be. That's not unto the gospel. You got to live what you say. My buddy Greg McClintock, who is a good friend of mine, and I just talked to him a couple of weeks ago uh, as he was driving down to Florida, he preached one time for me, and he said something I never forgot. He said, you know what? Every Christian out of witness... And sometimes they should even use words. And I thought to myself, what a powerful thing that is. You see, it's the real witness that you have is not what you say. The real witness that you have is, is what, you, what you live. And as I've said many times, it's the difference between telling somebody, boy, you see this all the time, telling somebody what God will do for them instead of telling somebody what God has done for you. You see, that's the difference between just putting out the words and then having a life that God has changed yours and everything about it is a witness. We ought to be able to use every facet. And I know we're human and I know we make mistakes and I get that. I'm not taking that away from us. We're all that way. But you know what? Every aspect of our life should be a witness. The way we deal with problems, the way we deal with issues, 
you know, the way things come up that we have to face, where the world falls apart. I always say it like this. Christians ought to be different from the world that when a disaster takes place, all the world is running from the disaster, all the Christians ought to run into the disaster. I think in 9-11, what a terrible tragedy that was in the life of all our first responders, the police department and the firemen and the rescue workers. And I've heard it many, many times from different people telling the story that, you know, one group was trying to get out of that burning building and there was a whole line of people coming down the stairwell getting out. And as they were going down, all the firemen were going up and every one of them lost their lives. Every one of them, they said, had a look on his face that they, were, they knew that they probably were not going to make it, but that was their job. And I've thought to myself, boy, if we could just get God's people with that kind of dedication. You see, <clears throat> policemen and, and firemen, and this can be a good thing or a bad thing, it gets them in trouble sometimes, but it's a, it's a great quality they got to have. They're not just cops or firemen when they're on the job. I mean, they're all the time. If a police officer is off duty and he sees somebody in help or he gets a robbery and he's there, he's not going to say, well, I'm not working today. If you're a paramedic or a fireman and you're driving down the street and somebody falls out of their car and has a heart attack, you're not going to dial 911. You're going to get out there and try to do what you can do. And you know what? Too many of God's people are just passerbyers on the tragedies of life. And you know Why? because they don't have anything to say because they don't have anything in their world to back it up. Everywhere you go, everywhere you go, Romans 14, 7 says, no man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. There's always somebody watching your life. And I've said it many, many times. It's the difference of telling them what God will do for them <clears throat> or what he's done for you. Separated unto the gospel as a servant with God's calling in your life, recognizing. <clears throat> and I'm going to tell you, <clears throat> we, have a, we have a natural draw here for people. Uh, we don't have a, <clears throat> you know, we don't have a big billboard someplace or we don't have a, you know, we didn't have a sign for the first six or seven years. Larry put it up. I didn't even tell him to put it up. He, he put it up because he wanted people to know where we were. And I didn't really care. <clears throat> Because I knew that the real signs to Old Past Baptist Church wasn't something you screwed up on the wall out there. It was you. Your life. People seeing you. The difference in you. And I'm telling you right now, the reason why we've got so many young adults in here and young singles and young couples is because you, they knew you. And they saw the change in you. And they were honest enough to know that they needed a change. So they wanted to know where, uh, where that change took place. That's what's going to happen to the, to, the, to the rest home. They're going to go there and they're going to see somebody that cares about their dad or their mom or their grandma or whatever when nobody else does. And they're going to look at you going up there and taking your afternoon on Sunday after you've already been to church and probably got something planned afterwards. And yet you take the time to go up there to be with them. And not just, not just preach to them. You're, you're going through and shaking hands with the crowd. You're introducing yourself. You're meeting people. That is what I'm talking about. You are separated unto the gospel of God. And that's really where our church growth is. As far as I'm concerned, the covert never hurt us at all. 
we lost 20, 30 people, but you know what? It's, it's just the way that it is. It's, it, you know, it's, it's a thing where we've already gained half of that back, and it just now it just keeps coming and keeps coming. It's, it's just the way that it is. And it doesn't matter. It's not about the numbers that you have. It's about the people that you have. What are they separated unto? Now, when it's the gospel, then your, your whole life's a witness, <clears throat> not just what you say. And you're careful where you go because you know that that can hurt your witness. You're careful with what you say. You're careful how you deal with it. I watch you guys as you get a little bit of Bible under your belt, and then God will bring people into your world that have issues, and they look to you, and you have the answers that they're looking for. Why are they even asking you? Because they see something different in you. And that's really the key. No man liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. Now, verse 34 tells us, back to chapter 5, But these things I say, that you might be saved. Now, nah, there's the bottom line right there. So we are to be like John the Baptist in our witness. As his witness was to bear witness of Christ and to who he is for men to be saved. And that'll be our witness at work. That'll be our marriage, our witness in our marriage, our kids, our families. All of it is a witness. You will find people out there, you take the average family unit, you will find people out there that a family is made up of a husband and a wife, kids. You will find people out there that are looking for your witness in those three things because they have issues and they want help and they see that something different about you, not just by our words, but our very way of life, our lifestyle. You know, in the Bible, the word conversation is used uh, differently than we use it today. We talk about conversation, and this just shows you how the, the English language has so degenerated. We use the word conversation in the sense of talking to somebody. Well, I had a conversation with so-and-so. Well, let's have a conversation about that. But in the Bible, it's more than that. In the Bible, the word conversation uh, follows the biblical principle of Luke chapter 6, verse 45, that in the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So conversation and lifestyle are used interchangeably in the Bible because they take for granted that what you're saying should be your lifestyle. And so it, it, it doesn't give you any variance out of that. Now, we make a variance today. We have lots of people that have conversation about the Lord that their life is, is, is terrible. But from a Bible standpoint, the word conversation is more than just the word that you speak. It's the lifestyle behind the word that you speak. You know, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, and again in Ephesians chapter 2, 3, in Ephesians 4, 22. Yeah, all those verses talk about our past conversations how they were in the flesh, in the world. There wasn't any glory to God in those things. But now, you go to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and it says, my conversation is around the gospel. You know why it is? Because you're separated unto the gospel. Philippians 3, 20 says that our conversation is in heaven, looking for Christ. Now, that's more than just what you talk about. That's your lifestyle. 
1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 says, Let no man despise thy youth, be thou an example of the believer. And I use this word, I use this all the time when I speak to young men and young ladies, you know, singles, young adults, you know, young couples, because you are the best example of that. I know we're limited now going down to the mission. And I know there was a time when we used to take 80 people down to the mission. And that just got to be too much for them. We had more down there than they did. In fact, I think some of you stayed the weekend because you, got, you found out you got free food. But you watch. You watch when we go down there and you young guys preach. They, they, if I got up and preached or, you know, some of the older guys get up and preach, you don't say something they like, they'll challenge you. But you put the guys like Drake or some of you young guys, AJ preached before, you young guys, when you get up there, they listen to every word that you say. And when they're done, they'll applaud. You know why? Because every one of them, every one of them once were where you were at, and now they know the mistakes that they have made that have put them where they're at. And they, they, they love clean, cleanliness. They need a young man that looks like he's, he's got it together. Years ago, they, the Bible colleges, you know, they had a, you know, you can talk to Penny Hansinger about this. She sang with a group for a while, and, and we still laugh about it. But they would, they would, these Bible colleges would send singing groups around to all these churches. And they'd go for one reason, and that is to recruit all your young people. And they have a really pretty girls and really handsome guys. And afterwards, you know, the girls would be very nice to the, the guys who could never get a girlfriend, you know, and they think, oh boy, I'm going to go to school there. I'll find a girl and God, girl and God instead of God and forget the girl. No, no. And, 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 and they, but it was all, it was all phony. They, 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 it was all choreog- choreography all the way. I mean, they'd get up there and they'd sing, and they looked great. And they gave the appearance of very clean-cut kids who loved God, and they probably did, and, and you know, were good kids and, and what you want your kids to be because they wanted to show the parents, if you send your kids to us, they'll be like that. It was all phony. They'd get up there and they'd, they'd, they'd sing, you know, and then uh, he'd look at her and sing and she'd look back at him and then somebody would get up and give the testimony and they'd cry at the same spot every church when they gave that testimony. And it was all choreography. It was all put together. You know, and the girls, the, the, they'd, all, they'd have like eight or nine of them, you know, and the half girls, half guys, and they'd, they sang great. And they were set up, you know, that when the girl, the guys would not sing and the girls would, all the guys would turn and look at the girls. And then when the guys sang, all the girls would turn and look at the guys. It was beautiful. I mean, they were the most perfect kids you could ever see in your life, and it was absolutely fake. I mean, they gave the same testimony every time, cried in the same spots, sang the same songs. Same fake plastic smiles. Same gazing over at the girls, gazing over at the guys, getting up there and saying, oh, I love God. Maybe you do, but you know what? Get a real job. Get a life. I mean, I always wondered how Mary Slesser, who was a missionary to the lepers, how they'd have fit in with her crowd. But you see, it's got to be real. And they see it in you guys down there. When you guys go to the mission, they see a young man who, 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 who could have been where they're at but made the right choices, and they applaud you because 
vicariously they're saying, I wish that I'd done that when I was his age. And that's why this verse is so important. This is why he says here that we are to be an example of the believer. He said, let no man despise thy youth. The greatest time for your life to be a witness for Christ is when you're just a young guy or a young gal before you hit 40 or 50. Because most kids your age don't want anything to do with God. Their lives are all messed upside down and all messed up in every way possible. And, you know, to see somebody like you who is real, not plastic like the singing groups, who is real, he says, be thou an example of the believer. Let no man despise thy youth. A lot of times preachers will say, well, you're too young to do anything. You're never too young to let your body be a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Younger the better. He said, let no man despise thy youth. Be thou an example of the believer. And now look what he says. Six things here. In word, that's what you say. In conversation, that's what you live. In charity, that's your honesty. In spirit, that's how you deal with people and things. In faith. Do you really believe what that Bible says when push comes to shove? And then he says impurity. Notice how word, word and conversation is used two separate things. And I'm telling you right now, your word is what you say and your conversation is how you live based on is that book real to you? And the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Luke six forty five. And what's really on the inside will always come out, whether it's a good treasure or an evil treasure. Now, when you look at John's witness, we see two aspects to it that really lines up to what our witness should be. Verse 35 tells us that he was a burning and a shining light, and we were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. Now, that's really a good example of what our witness should be. Our witness, based on us being a servant, that based on understanding our calling and the fact that we are separated unto the gospel, and now we can bear witness to the truth in two ways. And I think many of you do this without even knowing this. I'm just going to put a little bit of intelligence to what most of you are already doing. But the first thing he says here in verse 35 is that his witness was a burning light. Now that will be my witness to the unsaved world. This light will burn you. That burning light will be the reference to the eternal damnation of a man or woman who rejects the light of God's salvation. And, uh, you know, you get burnt. And our witness will either set a man free to be saved or it will set his eternal destiny to the lake of fire based on what he does with the witness that that we give him. Every Christian is a witness. You're either a good witness or a bad witness. You're either a good treasure or an evil treasure. And the world will look at you one way or the other. And that is your witness. There will be people who send men and women to hell and you never say an unkind word to them. You just lived a completely different lifestyle. You claimed to be a Christian, they knew it, and you lived like the world. And they didn't want any part of it. Why do you think Baptist churches have such a hard 
uh, time today with people thinking that Baptists are the most terrible people on the planet. Unfortunately, 99% of them are. So the Baptists all want to change their name so they'll get into a good light. I don't. You know, I don't. I always tell people I'm a Baptist with an explanation. And I explain to them why I'm a Baptist. And I know. I know. But changing your name isn't going to change anything because then you just go be a neo-evangelical and now into another whole mess. It's better off just to stay with the true line and proclaim it. And, you know, Matthew chapter 18, verse 18 is one of these verses that a lot of Christians, young Christians, oh, old Christians too, they have a hard time with. It says there, verily I say unto you, this is Jesus speaking now to his apostles. And he says, verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And a lot of people look at that, and I get asked that question a lot. What is that, what is that talking about, binding and loosing? What is all that talking about? Well, first of all, historically, he's talking to his apostles. He sent them out in Matthew chapter 10. He sent them to the house of Israel. And uh, they have the authority and the power to, to deal with them. Now, doctrinally, it'll be the 144,000 in the tribulation period who are under the same uh, commission and the same power uh, to do what they got to do. But inspirationally, it's me and you. And people look at that and say, well, how in the world do I have a, do I have a ability to bind somebody or loose somebody? Well, you on your own do not have that ability. But if you're saved here this morning, you do have the Holy Spirit of God in, inside you. And when you are separated under the gospel and you are a witness for Christ, then through that witness, you as an individual don't have the power, but the Holy Spirit of God working through you, you have the power to loose a man of his sins or bind him to his sins. How does that work? It works like this. I sit down and talk with a guy, and I say to him, you know what? You need to trust Christ as your own personal Savior. And uh, Jesus died for you on the cross, and he loves you, and go through the whole plan of salvation. If the guy says, wow, I really need to trust Christ as my own personal Savior, and you get him to that point where he gets saved, you've just loosed him from his sins. Now, if you sit down with the same guy or another guy, and you do the same thing and walk him through it, and he says, ah, no, I don't need that. I've never killed anybody. I don't need that salvation. I'm a, I live a good life and then he walks away, then through your witness, you have bound him to his sin. Not you personally, but the Holy Spirit of God inside you, working through you, using you to be a witness for Christ. And that witness will bear witness of a burning light. And you, 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 you lay it out. And you, you come to the point where uh, you witness to a man and he rejects. You've bound him to his sin. You witness to a man that gets saved. You have loosed him from his sin. Not through any power that you and I have, but through the power of the Word of God. Here's the word from last week. Abiding in you. Abiding in you and God using it, working through you. You see, you have all kinds of power once you become a child of God and get separated under the gospel. God will use you in so many ways in so many different places. My job, obviously, is to train you to get ready, and we've made no secret about this. My job is to train you to get you ready on, on, on higher levels that God can put you wherever He wants you to go. 
I mean, uh, you know, uh, Charles and, and his family and, and Josh and Kelly and all you young guys going down there to the rest home. Uh, and I, I use that because it's, you know, it's a fresh example. It, but it could be anything. You, you, it was a time in your life when you never could have done that. But now you can do it. Why? Because you're being trained. You've separated yourself to the gospel. And now you're learning in these situations the higher you go, the better off you're going to be and the more you're going to learn. And pretty soon, God will be able to drop you in any scenario that he feels you need to be in. It'll be like Philip, uh, Philip over there in Acts chapter 8. God pulled him out of the revival in Samaria and dropped him right in the desert. And God felt comfortable with that because he knew he could do. And this is what you want. This is what you want. You want God so comfortable with you that he can put you anywhere. But you know what it takes for God to be comfortable with you? It takes you being comfortable with God. See? It takes a lifestyle, a witness. Not just what you say. But through the power of God abiding in you and working through your lifestyle, the power of your witness that no man can deny. You see... People will and can deny what you say. They'll do it all the time. They cannot deny what you live. The consistency of a witness for him abiding in the truth, under the truth, cannot be denied. And where they may blow off your words and go their way, they'll never blow off your life. Because that Holy Spirit of God will take that thing and just dig down inside of them and they'll never rest. So the first aspect in verse 35 is the burning light. That's for unsaved people. Then he says that his witness was a shining light. Now that will be my witness to the saved world. Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 says, let your light shine. The little kids back there saying, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And it's a shining light now versus the burning light. This one illuminates. It doesn't burn anybody. It illuminates. Matthew chapter 5 verse 14 says that, that we are to, you know, a, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And most people don't see the power of that illustration, but if you ever drove someplace and you're, it's at nighttime and you come around a corner and there's a city up there on the top side of the mountain with all the lights on, you can't miss it. But, you know, from a practical standpoint, that's a picture of this church or any church because every one of you is a building, a temple. If you're saved this morning, you are a temple. The question is, are the lights on? And, of course, when you get a church that is made up of buildings, then you have a city. And when all the lights are turned on, that church can't be hid. God lifts it up. People see it. That's why we got a 1,000-plus people on the, on, the, uh, on the website. That's why we've got the people we've got here. and That's why they're moving from all across the country to come and be part of this. It isn't because of me. It isn't because, you know, we, we're problem-free here. No, it's none of that. It's because that for the majority of you, the lights are on. And your witness is more than what you say. Your witness is how you live your life. And people are drawn to that. They see that. 
And we live in a world, you know, I, I hear guys all the time, they talk about how dark this world is, and it's so dark, and boy, this is the worst time to ever be alive in history because of darkness. Everywhere you turn, there's darkness. The government, this, that, everywhere. It's, you can't trust anybody. It's darkness, darkness, darkness. It's so dark. And that's probably all true. But you know what I've learned? I learned that the darker it gets, the more the darkness illuminates whatever light you have. You know, in the Navy, when they had a blackout at night, you couldn't smoke a cigarette on the bridge because you could see somebody smoking a cigarette 10 miles away because if you've ever been on the ocean at night, it is as dark and dark as it could ever be in your life. You can't see the hand in front of your face. Some guy standing on the bridge smoking a cigarette, somebody with binoculars 10 miles away can see that thing and put a torpedo right in your, your ship. And so it wasn't allowed to do that. And, you know, a cigarette's just a little thing compared to the vast ocean, but it's the darkness that's the key because the darker it gets, the more any darkness illuminates any light. And you want this church to be seen, you want your life to be seen, then the intense darkness is a good thing because it lights for people to see in a world of darkness. It's the way it works. You know, God will give you his true light to point where uh, you can, you know, where you can time and find out where you're at, but you can help others get to that light too. And that's what so many of you do. You know, just because a man will have the light of God's salvation, you see this all the time. Come on, you know this is true. Just because a man will have the light of God's salvation doesn't mean he has the light of understanding with the Bible. He's got to grow into that light. The Bible says in Psalms 119, verse 130, that the entrance of thy word giveth light. It giveth understanding unto, there it is, the simple. So when you open up the book, the lights come on. Psalms 119, verse 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. There again, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and unto my path. Now, once you get past the burning light, the judgment of God, and you get saved, now that book becomes a shining light. The illumination of the Word of God in our lives by the light of the Holy Spirit of God, and there's two aspects to it. First aspect is what I try to do for you, and that is to make it a personal illumination that you can see the Bible yourself. The second one, I really don't have any control over. It's a natural process if I do my job with the first one. The first one is for me, uh, you know, personally to get you into the Word of God and to get your lights turned on. And the second one is once you get the lights turned on, you take that light to others, and that'll take care of itself. My job is helping you turn the lights on and to develop a brightness, a bright, shining light. You know, as you grow, <clears throat> when you get saved, all you got is a little candle. By the time I'm done with you, praise the Lord, I want it to be a floodlight. I want it to be one of them searchlights that they used in World War II to shoot down airplanes. I'm not satisfied with you just having a little candle or being a little flashlight. I want you to be a beaming light in the darkness of this world, and you can do it. Because let no man despise thy youth. 
maybe I can't do it or somebody in their 70s and their 80s can still do it, but not to the extent that you can. you got your whole life ahead of you. People look at me and they think of John Knox Village. They look at you and they think, in fact, I thought they'd be here today. I ordered my shoes with the Velcro straps on them just to... But you see, that's the job of a real Bible-based, Bible-believing church. You are first taking everybody that God gives you. And I, I firmly believe, and I've preached this for years and years and years, God won't give you any more than you're willing to take care of. And so when you see, the job is to take you and to develop that light. You get past a burning light, then you become a shining light. And boy, I wanted to eliminate you first. You see... That shining light, just so you get it into perspective here, that shining light is not given so you can judge other people with it. It's given so first you can judge yourself. Because the only way you're going to grow is to look at yourself and see, and the brighter the light gets, the more you see the imperfections. And the more you see the imperfections, the more you want to fix it, the more and the brighter the light gets. And pretty soon you have the ability through your own understanding of yourself to help somebody else, not to judge them, but you realize that they are the same boat that you're in and you got, you're, got where you're at because of where you're at, so you cut them to slack and it isn't the fact that you judge them or make fun of them or, 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 you know, or, or take an attitude toward them. You realize that they don't have the light that you've got. So you'll never help them get along if you have an attitude toward them. And of course, it's that shining light, the Word of God, that helps you get better, guiding you and me through every issue of life. The world is darkness, and it's filled with snares and traps and pitfalls. And the Word of God is the shining light for me that illuminates where I'm going, my feet, my walk, my path. And I can stay away from them, and I don't become victim of them. The power of our witness. Through being a servant with a calling. Now, sooner or later, and this is the importance of a Bible-believing New Testament local church that is here for you, not you here for me. This is what... This is what, sooner or later, you're going to have to deal with the issue. You young guys and gals. And you older folks, too, if you haven't already. But sooner or later, <clears throat> you're going to have to deal with the issue, what your calling is. Right now, you're young in the Lord. <clears throat> and, I, and, I, and I can use my own self. You know, I remember when I first got right with God, I was thrown into a, <clears throat> a mix just like here. <clears throat> where there were guys that were older. They were preaching. They were doing everything. And here I was, the newbie on the block. And I went through a lot of flood of emotions, too, because I, I felt every time I heard a guy do something, I thought that's what I wanted to do. When a guy came in and preached good, I wanted to be a preacher. When a guy came in and talked about mission, well, maybe I wanted to be a missionary. When a guy did this, well, maybe I want to do that. But see, I was in a place in, where, when you're not in a place where somebody can help you and hold you uh, and, and understand how this works. This is how people get messed up. You get the wrong calling because you make a calling based on your inexperience and your inability to really understand the calling. 
Your calling will come through this church, as mine did. Your calling of what God wants you to do as you grow here and you get to the point where God begins to use you and you begin to make yourself available, your calling will be the easiest thing in your life. And you see that in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 16 with Timothy and Paul. I'm sure that everybody out there, they, they get right with God and you're, you start to have a flood of emotions of what God wants you to do. And we see it in 1 Samuel chapter 3 there where young Samuel, he's dropped off by his mom at the temple there to serve the Lord and he's struggling with everything, that he, what she should do and the calling of God in his life. But thank God he had a man in his life, Eli, that every time he got some idea, he told him to go back to sleep and don't worry about it. And in the process of time, God revealed his calling to Samuel. Hey, Samuel became, without a doubt, the greatest prophet probably uh, that, uh, or the greatest judge, anyhow, that Israel had. And you know what? God wants you to have the best. So he put a structure together called the New Testament local church under the pastor, some guy who's supposed to know what he's doing and knows what he's doing to build people. He, there's, a, there's a systematic thing that you follow. You don't fly by the seat of your pants. You don't just go out and do this and do that. You follow a dedicated procedure that is laid out in the Scriptures. And through that, in time, God will show you your calling. And when He shows you your calling, it'll become to the place where through that calling, you'll find your real true meaning of separation. And you won't just be separated from the world. You'll be separated from the world, but separated unto the gospel. And through that separation unto the gospel which is defined for you in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, then you'll become God's witness unto His truth. And the rest of your life, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, once you put those three things in your life, the rest of your life, you will be a burning light to unsaved people, and you'll be a shining light to save people. And this is the road that most of you are on today. This is the road that's going to get you to the point where you understand God's calling. I don't understand God's calling in your life. I only understand God's calling in my life. But I understand the process by which God does it, and when it really comes to your life, we'll all see it, just like they did with Timothy and Paul. We'll be witness to the calling of God in your life. And then you go from there. So this is the importance of having a Bible-based, Bible-believing church <clears throat> that actually takes you and helps develop you. Having places along the way that God drops in like the like the the, the, uh, uh, the, the mission down there and the rest home ministry, the devotions that you do on, on I watch you guys on, on softball, the devotions that you do. Wherever God will give you an opportunity, somebody says, oh, they're just doing a devotion. Oh, no, you're out of your mind. That is a piece of your calling. You are developing part of your life toward that that God is going to take. He's going to develop and it's those little things 
that it, it all pulled together and all things work together for good, even the bad things, even the downside of things. If you have your focus that you're going to be separated unto the gospel, there's nothing that will stop you. And this church is here understanding that concept to help you be everything that God wants you to be. We have all the tools. We have the resources. We have the Bible. We have the older Christians who will help you along. We have everything that you need. There's no reason for you not to get everything that God has for you other than the fact that you just don't want it. So it's an incredible opportunity to see that our witness is not just about what we say. It's unto the gospel, our lifestyle. And we become that burning light and that shining light. There's so many of you are well on your way to doing it. And many of you older ones, you're already there. And you are part of the establishment here of helping bring others along. And that's the name of the game. And God keeps bringing them in from all across the country, our own city. He's coming in. This place is a great test to see if somebody really wants to do what's right. Now, some of them will come in and say, yeah, I really like this. I really want this. And then when they see what it takes, they say, ah. But you know what? Come back to John chapter 5. Isn't that so true? <clears throat> Verse 32. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that that witness which beareth witness of me is true. You send unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that you might be saved. Here it comes. He was a burning and a shining light. And ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. Some people only come for a season. See? They come in, they say, wow, this is great. Look at all this, look at all that. And when they have to see what they have to change, it's only for a season. Then you have others who you get in here and you say, this is it. This is what I'm looking for. I will spend the rest of my life being what God wants me to be because I finally found the truth. And that's the way it works. Well, we'll hold up there.